Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com, and at storyman.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. Uh, we opened up our whole thing like um, uh, two months ago or something like that, talking about um, theology in general, and the idea that the, the, the word theology actually really means words about God. And so if we are people who talk about God or think about God in any way, which we all do, then we're doing theology. And so what we're really trying to do together is ask if we're doing good theology. And the way we do that in the Nazarene tradition, because we are part of the Wesleyan holiness tradition, which we're going to keep defining and, and defining and defining. But we have four sources for our theology, four guides to help us do good theology. The first is the scriptures, the Bible. Uh, the second is reason, our own ability to make sense of things and to hold things together logically in our heads. Right? Uh, tradition, not just the uh, Nazarene tradition, which is about 100 years old, and not just the Wesleyan theological tradition, which goes back to John Wesley in the 1700s, uh, but also the entire 2,000-year history of the church and uh, of people who have, who have had the experience of the resurrection of Jesus and who are experiencing the Holy Spirit in their lives, as we're talking about uh, tonight. And so all of that is all of that informs our conversation. It helps us understand uh, what we're talking about when, when we do theology. And then the last is experience, our own experiences of God working in our lives, which again, particularly often comes in the form of encountering the Holy Spirit. So uh, a lot of this stuff is starting to come together tonight. Uh, we moved on from talking about the, the guidelines to theology to, to the most important central concept of theology, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. This idea that God is most basically, most fundamentally self-giving love, a God who exists as one God who is also three persons. Uh, and we spent a lot of time unpacking that and trying to make it at least a little bit less confusing. Uh, but that basically what it came down to is that when God set out to create, God did not create us out of need or out of compulsion, but out of an overflow and overabundance of love. And so uh, when we got into the next week talking about creation and humanity, we saw that, we saw that the, the, the ancient Hebrews, when they were writing these texts, imagined all of creation as sort of God's house, right? And that we were God's image and, and that God created us to live in God's world on God's terms as God's images, as a picture of God that, that all of creation could see. And what disrupted that was what we call sin. Uh, sin, is our, sin is our refusal to live in God's world on God's terms. And that culminated in actually the unmaking of creation, right? That, that actually what we see that is when we sin, when we choose not to live in God's world on God's terms, we're actually undercutting God's creative intentions. We're actually going against what we were created for. We're actually basically working backwards against God's plans, and we're, we're, we sin ends up corroding. Uh, I always think of acid for some reason, but it's like it corrodes the good designs and the good structures that God has, not only for our individual lives, but for our cultures, our societies, and even ultimately the, the fabric of creation itself. So once we got a handle on sin, we began moving through God's rescue plan in the scriptures, and we looked at that through the lens of covenants. 
Uh, we looked at different covenants that God made with specific individuals and how those were always moving us a step closer to what God's plan uh, ultimately was. So we got a covenant with Abraham that God would use his descendants to bless the world. We got the covenant with Moses where we got Torah and Tabernacle, right? A, a written record of God's way in the world and then a place where we could be with God, sort of a mini micro model of creation in the Tabernacle and then later in the temple. And then later with David, the you know the, the, the covenant that God made with David, that David would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And when we saw... In addition to the fact that God's constantly meeting us where we are and inviting us to come forward, is that we would refuse that. We would laugh at God. We would ask that, that God would not speak directly to us. We would look for a, a replacement so that we didn't have to be God's image, that someone else could do it for us. And so even as God is always inviting us forward, we saw that we refuse to be who God created us to be. We continue to settle for less than God created us to be. And so that culminated in human history in the exile when God's people were basically wiped off the map when the temple was destroyed when God abandoned you know God left the temple and all of that that we looked at last week and so into that brokenness and that despair into that feeling of abandonment by God that we had finally refused God so often that God let us have what we want and let us be conquered and face exile into that we have Jesus who comes onto the scene and we learn that Jesus actually is God Right, that he actually is not only God, but also fully human. He's the first person ever to live what we called a righteous life, which meant a life that's in right relationship with God. He's the first person who ever lived in God's world on God's terms, who never sinned. And because of that, Jesus ultimately was killed. Right, And this is kind of where we ended last week. Um, Jesus's righteousness, his right relationship with God, actually led him to be executed at the hands of humanity, at the hands of people who refused to live in God's world on God's terms, who insisted on remaking the world in their own image. And so what we saw at the very end of last week was that this was actually God's plan to defeat the powers of sin and death. So ultimately, through Jesus's death and resurrection, uh, God has victory over the powers that have enslaved humanity, over the powers of sin, over the power of death. And so through where we kind of ended last week was that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a new freedom. And the language that the Bible uses to talk about what Jesus has accomplished is nothing less than recreation, right? Um, the, the resurrection being on that Sunday, on the first day of the week, is not just the first day of a new week. It's the first day of the first new week. It's the first day. It's the, the early Christians called it the eighth day, right? You have the seven days of the old creation, and now you have the first day of the new creation. So the language that we get here in, in the New Testament is that now that God has defeated the powers of sin and death, God is now going to set about once again putting the world the way it was meant to be in the beginning. So we're getting, we're getting now a new creation week. Okay, take a deep breath. I'm going to take a deep breath. That's like basically everything we did for the first six weeks. Okay, is that hopefully that sounded at least vaguely familiar. If not, you either haven't been coming or you're forgetful. Um, are we good so far? Is that all, that all feels good? Okay. So what we're going to start out with tonight is what it looks like to say that God is putting the world back in order. And there's a tension that biblical scholars call the already not yet tension. Uh, this, if you were here during uh, during the Pentecost season, after Easter and before Pentecost, we actually called our whole sermon series "Already Not Yet" because of the same idea. 
And the idea is that we're living between the, uh, the beginning of the new creation and the end of the old creation, right? The, the old creation was defeated when Jesus died and rose from the dead. The powers that controlled that, the sin and the death that had, that had covered everything, those were defeated at the cross, but obviously they're not gone yet, right? I mean, we all still experience sin. We all still experience death. We also live in a world that's clearly broken. So in some important sense, even though the cross was, was God's final victory over all of that, it's not, it's not gone yet. And the language in the New Testament is exceedingly clear that a new creation has begun. That it's already here. That Jesus is already, like his resurrection was the beginning of something. So it's almost like there are these two realities that are overlapping, and one of them's on its way out, and one of it's one of them's on its way in, and we're just stuck in between them. We're caught in both of them, and for particularly for Christians, uh, that creates a lot of well, it creates all kinds of tensions, right? And so I kind of drew this little uh, this little thing like. There's, there's two paths that we're invited, well, there's two, there's two paths that we have the option of following. Um, one is the path of Adam, and one is the path of Jesus, or the second Adam, as, as the New Testament calls him. And so what we're really talking about, at least for the little bit of the beginning here, is salvation, which again is a word that means rescue, right? So we're asking, how does God save us, or, or maybe more accurately, what does, it, what, does the, what does the rescuing that God does in our lives look like? How are we rescued from the path of Adam, from the path that leads to death, and how are we brought to the path that leads to Christ? Um, but I wanted to stop uh, here at the very beginning of this and address a concept that, uh, again, if you've had any kinds of theological conversations, you've probably gotten into, and this is the idea of predestination. So some people have probably heard of this. Okay, a few of you. Um, now the question is, does God choose who will be saved? Because there's some language in the New Testament, we're going to get to it in a minute, um, that, that seems to indicate that God has chosen some people and then by implication not chosen other people, right, to be saved. Um, and there's a this, is a, this is a really, really complicated issue, as you can imagine. Uh, so I'll just give you, I'll just give you the, the short version. As a Wesleyan denomination, we believe that God chooses everybody, but that not everybody chooses God. Okay? Now, not all denominations believe that, but that's, that's sort of how a, someone in the Wesleyan tradition would frame that. Okay? That, that God, God chooses everyone to be saved and makes, makes it possible for everyone to be saved, but that not everyone responds by choosing God back. Okay? Um, and the way we make sense of some of this language, well, I want to, I want to read the, I want to read it first. Okay. Um, so let's go ahead and look at some of the verses I put on your paper. Uh, the first one is that, uh, and, and a lot of this stuff is going to be coming from Romans, particularly from like the middle of Romans chapters five through eight. Uh, it would be great for you. We're not going to have time to read all of it tonight, and we're certainly not going to have to spend the detail that it deserves. Uh, Romans is probably, I'm guessing off the top of my head right now, I would bet, I wouldn't bet because Nazarenes don't bet. I would suspect <laughs> that probably more ink has been spilled over the book of Romans than any other single book in the scriptures. That might not be true. Don't hold me to that. But I would guess that that is true. It would not surprise me in the least if it's like by a factor of two true. 
Um, Romans is a, an intricate and complex book, and it's, it's got a lot of stuff going on in there. So all that to say, we don't have the time to give to Romans that it deserves, but in, your, in the next week, in between uh, this week and next week, it would be great for you to spend some time just reading Romans 5 through 8 because there's a ton of really good material in there. Uh, I promise you, you can spend a week in it, and you won't even be close to, you'll still be at the very tip of the iceberg, so there's plenty to keep you busy and lots of really good, meaningful stuff in there. Uh, particularly, Romans 8 is really all about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. We're going to be a little bit in Romans 8 later, but it's just, it's just a phenomenal chapter. So, Romans 5 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God, with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because the Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Now that's, that's your basic, like, like that's, the, that's the good news about Jesus in a nutshell, right? Even while we were God's enemies, God died for us and God made it possible for us to be friends with God. God made, God restored that broken relationship. Like that's, that's the good news. We didn't have anything to do with it. It was all God doing God's stuff to make it possible to open that way back up for us. Okay. Uh, then uh, a little bit further down in Romans five, Paul says this, he's talking now, he's specifically talking here. Remember I said that the new Testament calls Jesus, the second Adam. Here's where you see some of that language really strongly and why I drew this uh, path in these, like kind of this tree looking thing, right? It says now Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Okay. And we talked about that in the week about sin, right? That thanks to Adam, like everyone is now bent away from God. Like our whole, every, every aspect of human culture, everything, everything is fallen. Everything is bent. Everything is broken away. Um, okay. So Adam's one sin brought condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So there's that, right? What Adam broke, Jesus fixed. Right? What Adam bent away, Christ bent back. Okay? Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So what Paul's doing here in Romans 5, and again, if you spend more time in that whole chapter, you really start to see how this is happening. If Paul's creating these, this, this kind of dichotomy or this comparison between Adam and Jesus. Right? Between the first person of the old creation and the first person of the new creation. Right between the first person who had a chance to do everything right and didn't, and, and the next person who had a chance to do everything right and did. Okay, so he keeps bouncing back and forth between Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ. Um, and and what, what, you, what you really begin to see as you work through all of this is that, that what we are presented with in Jesus is it's almost like Jesus takes us back to the garden and presents us with those same two choices again. Right? Do you want your world on your terms? Do you, think, do you think you have what it takes to be the God of your own little universe? Or will you live in God's world on God's terms? You know, will you choose to follow the way of God? Will you choose to be the way you were created to be? All this stuff we've been talking about the whole time, right? This, this idea that Torah was the way that we were created to live. This idea that Jesus is the first person who truly was fully what it means to be human, right? And he offers us, do you want to be that? 
Or are you going to stay in all of these things, all of these ways that lead to death? And what, what his death and resurrection opened for us is, is the idea that this is even a possibility. Because until Jesus, like, there's only one, that, this is it, right? And Jesus opens this whole new possibility for us. Now, uh, I think I put on there Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this is, uh, so here's what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, and this you can hear here where the, some of the predestination language comes from. It says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Okay, so, so saying that there's, there are people that got you, this is where you hear the language, right? There's people, and God chose them and decided in advance before the foundation of the world of us. Now, um, where, where the predestination language gets confusing is exactly one of the biggest differences between ancient cultures and our modern culture. And it's this idea of individualism, okay? In our world, the most basic unit of humanity is the individual person, right? I'm a beautiful, unique snowflake, and you're a beautiful, unique snowflake, and you're a beautiful, unique snowflake, and we're, we're all told from the time we're very small that there's no one else in the whole world that's quite like you, and I don't know how many of you were raised with the Messiah complex from your parents, but I certainly was. They were like, God has wonderful plans for you, like, you know, and they like, I was practically the second coming of Christ in my house sometimes, the same sound of, like, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of us experienced that. Um, that's not how the ancient people saw people, okay? In the ancient world, the most basic unit of humanity was the house, right? That thing that we've been talking about this whole time, right? And so we have, we have this idea, particularly in America, that whoever you are, doesn't matter who you are, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be anything you want to be. Okay, the, the, the Sam Walton story is one of our, if, you know, if America has any kind of like founding myths, it's like the, the Sam Walton story, right? Which if you don't know who Sam Walton is, he basically, he started Walmart. And he, his first job, according to legend, the legend of Sam Walton, uh, which is practically like Davy Crockett said at this, at this point, right? But he started out sweeping floors in a mom and pop convenience store like, you know, in the little small town he grew up in. And then through hard work and ingenuity and all those other things that we prize, he founded a multi-bajillion, gajillion dollar empire, right? And, and we, again, particularly in this country, we love that story. We love the idea that someone can be born into relative poverty and become king of the world, right? Now, that is a particularly American idea, Okay, uh, until very recently in human history, that was not the way anyone thought about anything. Who you were was 100% dependent on who your parents were, and who they were was 100% dependent on who their parents were. Okay, um, and so the idea that you can choose your own destiny and strike out, and you know, I'm even thinking when I was a kid, I read Choose Your Own Adventure books, right? Which that's the that's the thing. Like you choose, you choose whatever you like. That's that's what you get to do as a person. And in their world, it wasn't. Whatever your parents did, that's what you were going to do. And so on and so on and so on and down the line. And so what determined whether or not you were wealthy, what determined whether or not you were respected, what determined whether or not you were considered an insider or an outsider was always who your parents were. Or more, maybe more appropriately for the way we're talking about things is whose house you belonged to. Okay? Whose house you were in determined your fate. And 
of course, the way you're in a house is you're born into a house, right? I mean, that's that's it. Like that's how that's how you get into a house. And so, um, for an ancient person coming to this text, hearing this language like God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family, it's actually it's actually a really radical idea. The idea that you could switch families, the idea that uh, who your parents are or what house you were born into doesn't necessarily decide your fate. And so uh, the, way that, uh, the way that a lot of Wesleyans will understand this particular language is that what, what Paul is talking about here, and the same thing that he's talking about in Romans, is that there are two kinds of people or two houses of humanity. There's Adam's house and Jesus' house. And the really crazy thing is that we're all born into Adam's house. And Adam's house has a particular destiny. It's only, it's only headed in one place. Death. Right? That's, that's, what, that's what Adam chose, and therefore that's what all of his descendants are fated to. Okay? But God had said, well, no, it's always been my intention that I would have a people who live in my world on my terms and bear my image. And so I'm creating a, a separate house. And this is, this is, again, I'm kind of using language here that's trying to pull together the themes from everything so far. I'm trying to use the house, the house of Jesus. And you can, actually, you can actually go from one to another. God will adopt you into this new house. God will take you into the house that leads to life. And both of these houses have a destiny, have a predestiny, right? One of these houses is going to end in death, and one of these houses is going to end in life. And the choice that is before you is the same choice that was before Adam and Eve in the beginning. Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? And so the, the truly miraculous thing, well, there's a, there's a couple of things that are truly miraculous. One, for an ancient, and again, this doesn't, sound, this doesn't sound impressive for us because we live in a world of adoption and of getting to choose whatever we want to do, right? But the truly, the truly good news for an ancient listener would have been that you have a choice. That God actually will let you, not only let you, but welcome you and encourage you and, and bring you into the house of Christ. Um, the other thing that I think is particularly fascinating about all of this, uh, and I, I put it in here, it's Revelation thirteen eight, is this idea that uh, the scriptures refer to Jesus as the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Uh, Revelation likes the sacrificial imagery, it comes from the temple system and the priest system and all of that, right? And... There's this idea, actually some of the rabbis have it too. They say that, because, they, because again, we all know the reality of sin, and, and the idea that God would create a world with agents that are free to choose means that there's going to be people who choose poorly, right? People who choose sin, people who choose death. And so some of the ancient rabbis said that God, God forgave the world before he created it. Like there's this idea that God, God created knowing, knowing what it would cost, knowing what we would choose, and knowing what, what a relationship with these people would take. And so there's this idea that Jesus being the second member of the Trinity, eternal, uncreated, infinite, right? That God understood that if he was embarking on this creative mission, that he was going, it was going to cost him before he decided to create. Like, he understood this. This was, this was a, you know, it wasn't like he created us and they got to the garden and he was like, oh no, what do we, you know, what do we do? They sinned. Like, we didn't see this coming. Like, no, like, God understood that if I'm going to create a world with free moral agents who are capable of authentic relationship with me, they're going to sin. They're going to choose 
death, and therefore part of my commitment to create them is my commitment to redeem them, and that will cost me, like that will cost me everything, like death, right? And so the scriptures can speak about Jesus as the lamb that was slaughtered, the lamb that was sacrificed before, before God began creating the world, before God laid any of the foundations, before God did any act of creation, before God spoke the first let there be, right? Jesus was already sacrificed. That's a, yeah, it should be on your papers. It should be Revelation 13, 8. Yes. The lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. So. I think I have two thoughts. Sure. First, um, don't you think that America should really understand that because we have so many broken families and families that are just so fragmented anyways? Yeah, I think we're getting back to this idea. But again, like, it... Because we have so many individual success stories of people who came from places of brokenness but still found wholeness or found success or whatever, we say, well, see, like, if one person out of ten could do it, why can't the other nine, right? I mean, we still have that kind of mentality. Like, the only thing that's stopping you from succeeding is you. That's, that's our mentality. Like, most of us in here are probably, like, our gut reaction would be like, well, yeah, that's true. Like, that's how we think as Americans. Um, now, that's... Not true. I mean, eh. exceptional people can succeed no matter what. But I'll, okay, my other yeah, okay, go ahead. As Nazarenes, do we believe the predestination of how our life is going to go? Like when we were born, did God know? You know that right. The details. That I'm have cancer, or that yeah. I'm not going to have cancer, or so. So the question is, uh, how exhaustive is God's foreknowledge slash predetermination? Right, yes. and that's. Yes. And, and as Nazarenes, what would we believe? So there are a couple of ways to look at all of this. There's actually several, and Nazarenes kind of fall in the middle of a couple of them. The first one is the, is the like strict predestination, which says that there is no actual free will, that any free will that we experience is an illusion, and God has dictated like everything, everything. But if that okay. was true, things would be so much better. Well, you maybe. Right. That, that that's one theological position. That's one like that's one far extreme. Uh, the kind of the next click over on the spectrum would be the idea of divine foreknowledge, which is that God does not choose what's going to happen, but God knows exhaustively everything that's going to happen. And that's probably where most Wesleyan theologians fall. Uh, the next click over from that is. Uh, what would what what is called in theological circles open theism, and that is that when God decided to create, God created a world with free will that then necessitated that God does not have exhaustive knowledge of the future. So God maybe didn't know like smaller things, like kind of like knows the big strokes. Um, there's a few Nazarenes that would kind of lean that way, and then like the the far other 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 extreme is that God's basically like a person with superpowers like he doesn't know anything doesn't have any exhaustive knowledge god god grow you know and that's that's typically out that's that's what's called process theology and i didn't characterize it very fairly but um that you don't find there's maybe one or two relatively extreme obviously that's a fairly just like the other extreme right that's an extreme so there's maybe a couple of nazarenes that would lean that far but most, most of the theologians are going to crowd around that idea of divine foreknowledge. That God knows, God knows what's going to happen, but God doesn't dictate what's going to happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So, um, again, again, it's a fascinating spectrum, and there's people all along there. So, there's a there's a scripture, and I can't, I can't verbatim, but it's something about you know, if if the Father bring them to me, then I will indeed you know save them. I will yeah. not turn away from them. Yeah. If the Father brings them to mm-hmm. me, and that's confused me. Like, well, I don't exactly understand. Does that mean that he, Father, you know, that Abba already decided who would be saved? Right. So, son? so this is the same the, the same question about who does God choose and how does God choose them and all of that and what. So again, there's some some theological circles that say that according to some inscrutable divine logic that none of, no humans can understand, God chose, specifically like chose some people and did not choose other people. And it's not based on merit. It's not like he chose good people and didn't choose bad. Just, we don't know why, but did. Um, where a, That's not the Wesleyan tradition. What a Wesleyan is, would say is that anyone who comes to God is drawn by God because literally everything we do is at the mercy of God. Like the reason the sun keeps rising, the reason we keep breathing, the reason I experience the love of a hug, like everything in my life is because God continues to will that I experience these things. And so if I'm having experiences that are drawing me to God and that are helping me to understand who God is and my need for rescue and all of these things, those are happening in my life because God is actively working and seeking in my life. So God is, God is drawing me, right? The question that people answer different ways is whether or not I have any choice in resisting that draw, right? If God is drawing me and you and you accept God's draw, can I not accept God's draw or not? And so that's, that's the, that's where people diverge. And, and Wesleyans being very strongly free will would say, well, yeah, you know, and again, like the, it's the reason I'm Wesleyan. The reason I think it works really well is the, the metaphor of relationships, right? Uh, probably all of us in here have liked someone at some point that didn't like us back. And it didn't matter how much we pursued that person or how much we liked them, how many good vibes we put out. It has to be a two-way thing. Both people have to want the relationship. Um, now, again, this is a super complicated topic, and I'm just telling you the Wesleyan position on it. There are other... Um, obviously, the fact that it's not the only position should tell you there's really smart people on all sides of it that have really good reasons for believing what they believe. Um, but that's a whole different class, and lots and lots and lots more time. Isn't that kind of the example of the Garden of Eden? It depends on how you read it. I mean, yes, like, look. Because they still had free will to choose. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, again, we could we could spend all night in this rabbit hole. And <laughs> we're not going to because I want to get to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Doug. I got the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Go on. Are you going to define life and death? No, I can, though. You want me to? Sure. Uh, so I drew this nice little bar here on the board and said end, right? Um, I like to define life and death in the terms that the, the scriptures really let it lead us to, which is life is in God's world on God's terms, and death is apart from God, not in God's world, not on God's terms. Um, uh, next week, well, not next week, but the, the next time we meet is when we're going to really get to the end and what the theology of the end looks like. And we're going to spend more time in the quote-unquote afterlife theology stuff. But, I mean, for our purposes, we can say, I mean, if you want to think heaven and hell, you can think of it that way. Uh, that's probably a nice shorthand 
because we are talking about like eternal realities once you get past this bar. Though again, your, your end is the end. The end of the world or the end of an individual life? Yes. Either or both. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah. Yes. So, but, and, and the reason I drew it this way is because I, like, it, what we're going to see more next week is these are not distinct, different realities. I mean, they're, they're, the, the life that we experience with God now is going to continue into eternity, or the death that we experience apart from God now will also continue. You know, it's not like a totally different thing. So, but we'll get there. Okay, so I want to briefly do, oh yeah. We all sinners that we go back and yeah. yeah, we're getting there. Yes. Good anticipation, though. Yes. I mean, yes. Yes, that's exactly right. That we are, we're in between. We're in, and that's why I said that tension of that already not yet. Like, yeah, we, we are coming out of that broken, dead creation that is passing away, but is not yet passed away. And we are participating in the new creation that began in Jesus' resurrection, but it's clearly not finished yet. And we're, we are in between those two realities. Abs- yes. Yep, and we all experience that tension. We all experience those really, really good times with God where it seems like it's just all so real, you can practically touch it. And then those other times when you're just like wondering if there even is a God, right? And if you're, are you praying or are you just talking to yourself, right? Yes. Um, do you belong in a church or in an insane asylum? Like, like we, all, we all have those experiences. And that's, that's, that's that bouncing back and forth that you're, that you're talking about, right? That we're, that we're in between. We're in between. And it's frustrating, and it's complicated, and it doesn't always make a lot of sense. So when the end comes, when Jesus comes back, we won't be bouncing back and forth? Nope. It will be clear? Yep. The old heaven and the old earth have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the vision in Revelation 21. Done. End. And beginning. So will we not have free choice at that point? Still we'll have free choice. We're, get, we're getting there. Have a... I promise we're going to get to all that, right? We're not going to do a theology class without getting to the theology of the last things. But that's not this week. So I know I'm teasing you a lot, but I promise it'll be worth it. So I want to go through some, some kind of stages of salvation real quick with you because this is important for us to understand the Spirit's work. Uh, and what you need to understand is that as soon as you start trying to tease apart how exactly we're saved, you get into weird places, okay? Because none of us experience these as distinct stages and everyone's experience of salvation is very different. And so these are all sort of theological shorthands that theologians have developed to kind of help us understand and get a better picture of this indescribable experience that is becoming one with God in Christ, right? This thing that's, that's, that is beyond words. And so we tried to, that's not going to stop us. Uh, we're going to try to put some words on it. But um, again, I think, again, you, Particularly, depending on how much time you spend with theologians, people get really caught up in trying to discern and what's, what's the order and how does it all happen and blah, blah, blah. And what you often find out is that it usually mirrors that individual author's own salvation experience. You know, and so what it's saying is like, well, this is how it's happened to me, so this must be how it happens. And you're like, for some people, sure, but it's... God rescues people however God wants to rescue people, and he doesn't follow our order usually. So these are just helpful shorthands for you. Right? This is, that's nothing more than that. So the first is justification. We talked about this last week. This, and remember, that we talked about it primarily as a, first as a relational term. What it means to be justified is that we are restored to a right relationship with God. God has forgiven us of our sin. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are released 
from the power of sin and death. The, the, the metaphor that's used is slavery. We were slaves, and now we're free. Okay? We were in bondage, and now our chains are gone. That's, that's, the, it's, it's a, that's the metaphor that's used. Um, the New Testament even calls us new creations. So here is 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, Since we believe that Christ died for all... We also believe that we all died to our old life, right? That old life that's in that old creation, the one that's broken and dead and passing away. We have died to that. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, right? We're not in the old path of Adam anymore. Now we're in the life of Christ. We have this new reality, this new life. Um. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The le- it's, it, I cannot imagine stronger language than dead and new, right? It's not just like old and new. It's dead and, and new life. Like old dead thing, new alive thing. That's, that's the comparison that Paul is making. Okay, so that's, that's, that's justification. That's that sort of initial sort of moment of salvation where we actually become a new creature, where we're actually folded into the life of Jesus out of the life of Adam, into the new reality out of the old reality. Okay, the next big chunk is uh, people call it sanctification. It literally means to be set apart. Things that are sanctified are things that are for God. Okay, it means they're set apart to give to God. Uh, now, the word sanctification, it comes from the Latin word sanctus, which if any of you had to sing Latin in high school choir like I did, you had to sing that word a lot. Um, and that word just means holy. So when you hear sanctification, think holification, holification. you're making something holy, which really what, it, what that actually all means, it's a nice big $20 word for it becomes like God. Okay, it becomes holy like God is holy. It is set apart the way God is apart. And again, remember when we talked about in the Old Testament, right? Everything had to be very carefully controlled because God was holy and the world was not. And so you had the temple that was holy, but then inside the temple you had the holy of holies, which actually just meant the holiest place, right? And that was where God was. And then the further you got away from God, the less holy things were. And so the temple was holy. The holy place was really holy. The priests who went into the temple were holy. The sacrifices for the temple that the priests did were holy, right? And all, all of that means is that they were for God. They were like God. They were different from the world. They were like God. So for us to become sanctified literally means that we're becoming like God and specifically that we're becoming like Jesus, Okay, because if Jesus is both fully human and fully God, sanctifi- what sanctification really is, is it's that process of becoming who God originally created us to be. It's this, this vision that we had in Genesis 1 and 2 where we are in the garden with God. And there, we don't need a temple. We don't need this like airlock kind of system that, where God's too dangerous to touch, right? Because we're holy like God is holy. And there's, there doesn't need to be this difference or this separation because we are like God. That's, yeah, Chris. There's kind of a demonstration of that. In the Old Testament, when uh, the ark was recovered from the cave of Canaanites, yes. and somebody stumbled, and somebody went to grab the ark, and boom. And they got killed, right. In the New Testament, there's a woman sneaks up on Christ, touches the hem of his robe, and she's healed. Yeah, that's a Not great comparison. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so there's this idea... 
there's this really cool idea. In the Old Testament, you got this idea that holy things were dangerous, right? And like Chris illustrated with that story, like they could actually, like they were super dangerous. They could kill you. They were so dangerous. In the New Testament, Jesus' holiness works exactly the opposite. Um, he is, his holiness is contagious. And so, uh, again, there were all of these things in, in, the, in the law, in the Torah, right, that you couldn't do because they would contaminate you with their unholiness. You couldn't touch a dead body. You couldn't touch a leper. Uh, you couldn't touch uh, certain kinds of people, right? And, and Jesus went around touching them all. And instead of them contaminating him with his, their unholiness, he made them holy, right? Yeah, right. I mean, which is the same thing, right? Yeah, he, he, he made them like him. Right. And so there's this there's this idea that through Jesus, through this new creation that God has begun, everything starts to flow the other direction. Instead of the sin and the death creeping in on the things that are good and pure, uh, the goodness and the purity and the holiness start to creep out the other way. And they start to they begin to slowly overtake uh, the world of sin and death. It's a, it's a really cool kind of uh, kind of picture. So. Uh, now, we can't talk about sanctification without briefly mentioning the idea of entire sanctification because uh, this is the Nazarene doctrinal distinctive, okay? This idea of, of being entirely sanctified. And I'm going to just warn you, uh, if you're hoping for clarity, too bad, <laughs> because our denomination is only 100 years old, and if you look at any denomination, in the first couple of hundred years, they're all confused and trying to figure out exactly what they mean. So if you just read, uh, you, and you can do this in, in the Nazarene theology. If you go back to the first Nazarene theologies that were written, they'll say one thing about entire sanctification. And if you jump ahead like a decade or two or like a generation or two and you read them, they're like, I mean, those guys, like, they were good guys, but they weren't exactly right. And then they change it up. And then you jump ahead another generation or so and they change it again. And so all of that to say, we're still a very young denomination, and we're still trying to get our heads around exactly what all of this means. And we're using that quadrilateral that we talked about to really help us get a handle on it. We're taking, we're taking what the scriptures say. We're taking our own experiences of the Holy Spirit, our own experiences of the process of sanctification, of becoming like God. We're taking our tradition, what we've been saying in the Nazarene church, and then also what other Christians have been saying about it. And then we're taking our own experiences. We're saying, okay, well, here's what we started out saying. And, th and this is actually one of the big problems. Like the, some of the first people who talked about entire sanctification said, well, once you're entirely sanctified, you never, ever sin again, ever. We were like, okay. And they had, you know, they had some scriptures, and they had, like, it, it all kind of made sense, right? The problem was you got in some churches where people were like, well, I'm entirely sanctified. And then you hung out with them for like five minutes. You're like, I don't <laughs> So the two options are, one, I don't understand this. Or two, you ain't it. Like, that, uh, you know. And so, again, that, that, the experience. Like, it wasn't that we had a theological problem, right? It wasn't that we had a, a logical problem. It was that we had an experiential problem. We said, we have all these people that are having these experiences like they're supposed to be having with this entire sanctification thing. But then... There's just something else going on. So we had to go back into the, into the muck of everything and kind of just keep sorting out what it means. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Maybe don't tell me when I said this. But, like, we're still sorting it out. And no, it's, it's, like a, it's like the emperor's not wearing clothes, like that story. You know, it's like you, in Nazarene circles, like, you can't say that. You have to pretend like everyone knows exactly what entire sanctification is and we all agree on it. And if someone's ever like, you all know that if we had everyone write it down and put them in a hat, they'd all be different, you know. So... You might be wondering now at this point why, why I even brought it up. Here's why, here's why I brought it up. 
And, and for me, this was actually one of the things that drew me to the Church of the Nazarene specifically. It was this doubt, even, even, with, even with all of its muddledness, even with, all of, even with a lack of clarity surrounding the doctrine of entire sanctification. The, what, 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 what is clear for us is that we believe that unbelievers, or, or sorry, we, we believe that believers can be unbent, okay? That, that our lives can be free from bondage to sin and death. And that, that is a freedom that we can experience in this world, in this time. Not after, not just after, okay? But that freedom from sin and freedom from, freedom from a heart that's formed mainly by sin is something that we can experience in the here and now. And that this is, a, this is an unearned gift from God, just like salvation, Okay. Now there's a lot of debate about whether it's a, a crisis experience, whether it's some, you know you have to have a particular experience of sanctification, or whether it's a, something that happens over your lifetime. And again, my suspicion is that it's both. Like people have both of these experiences. John Wesley had a some kind of a sanctification experience. I know a lot of people who have more of a process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. Um, but again, just sort of just like salvation, I think we get so caught up in the trying to diagram it all out and figure out who goes where and what and at what time and when that we sort of miss the good news, which is that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and works in such a way that we become like God and not like our old fallen selves. And that this new creation language, like the Bible kind of means it. Like we, we can be freed from sin. And so... At the end of the day, that's what, excited, that's what excites me about it, is that our lives don't have to continue to be characterized by sin and death, and that our wills and ourselves can continue to become more and more and more like Jesus. Uh, and I, again, I'm a theology nerd, so I'm happy to debate the minutia of it all day long, but at the end of the day, like, that's what's exciting to me. So when we talk about entire sanctification, and, and again, you're getting some of my baggage, right? Because I grew up in a I grew up in a denomination that never thought about sanctification. All we cared about was salvation, and so as long as you just got someone to accept Jesus, that was it. And there was no there was no. Inf- I mean, they would say, "Well, yeah, we we find it important for people to grow," because everyone's going to say that, right? Just like if you say, "Well, do you think it's important for Christians to spread the gospel?" No Christian is going to be like, "Nah." I don't, nah, I don't think it's important. Like no Christian is going to be like, "I don't think it's important to grow." In Christ, right? But I was in a denomination that didn't actually value it. Like, they didn't actually do anything to help us grow. All that mattered was, you know, kind of getting you in the door. And so what really attracted me to the Church of the Nazarene is that we know, like, we actually expect that even after you've found Christ, even after you've chosen to follow God, even after God has done that initial work in your life, there's still, like, continued uh, expectation in the best way, right? In the best way. Like, um, it's not. It's not just that you sign up for the track team. You're expected to run too, you know. And that's cool. Like that's neat. Um, I, it's good. I think we need that. We need that continued um, social pressure. And again, I mean those things in the best way. Like that's that's what that's what why a community is important. Do you think that God has a unforgiveness compartment within Him? What do you mean? Well, if people have free will, the people who have not chosen Him. Mm-hmm. He can't have forgiven them if they haven't asked yet, right? Uh, well, we're actually talking about that on Sunday. Um, yes, I think forgiveness is something that you do regardless of whether someone responds to you or not. Because that's talking about sanctification. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness to me is supposed to be easier once you're sanctified. Once you're sanctified? Oh. Yeah, well, that has 
I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think it's very hard for anyone to forgive, particularly, I mean, maybe not if they just, like, cut you off in traffic, but, like, if it's some sort of, like, intentional, fairly egregious offense, like... Yeah, I mean, who yeah. whoever said that that has to... Who, whoever said you have to get to a point where it says, oh, that extreme hurt you caused me isn't supposed to matter. Like, of course it matters. Of course it, it, it impacts you. Um, now, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's supposed to be easier. I, I, think, I think it does mean you're not trying to do that on your own and that actually learning to, learning to participate in how God is forgiving you actually can help you learn to forgive other people because, specifically because God forgives us whether we come to him or not. And again, like, kind of like I said, those, like what those rabbis talked about, right? Like the, before God even began to create, God decided to forgive us. So, because forgiveness, forgiveness is never something we do because someone has approached us. Forgiveness is something that we have to do regardless of how someone else treats us. Regardless of if they ever come and apologize or ask for our forgiveness or anything. Um, if we don't, we just be... And it, the, so God I'm, doesn't have any unforgiveness within him? I don't think so. Turn the other cheek, the 770 rule. Yeah, yeah, I mean, All that's... That is, that's but like you said, you, it's within you yeah. to render it, whether they accept it or not. Yeah. It's just like Adam and Eve's choice. Here God, you can put them in Eden and left them with God. But he still loved them. I think God, well, I mean, so we have scriptures, right? Not only is Jesus the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, but it says he's a sacrifice not just for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. John 3.16, everyone's favorite Bible verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, you know, it's, it's and, and again, so the real tragedy is that God has extended this free forgiveness, that, that people are forgiven and they're, they're walking around living in unforgiveness because they haven't accepted that, because they haven't, they may not even know that they've caused offense, right? They may not even have any idea that that there there is a God that they have wronged. Um, How does that fit with where in Scripture it says, uh, "If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness." Yeah. Um, right. If uh, you know, I'd have to look at the the way that sentence is set up in the like in the Greek and what all the my suspicion would be there's some kind of construction there, uh, and I don't even know off the top of my head what word for forgiveness is used and all that. But I can look into that if you, uh, for next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but again, like I think I think you have to have you have to read that scripture in light of all of the scripture that talks about how how everyone is forgiven and all of that kind of stuff. So, my, yeah, faith. I, I always thought that sanctification was. Um had to deal with the will because we still have that free will mm -hmm. that God gave us but it's like trying to get it in control yeah. where, we, where our first thought becomes not my will right. but thy will and right. to me that's I know for me that's been a process yeah I'm still trying to get there well and that's where I use that language of the unbending right that the, the sanctification is that so, so where we were bent here away from God the process of sanctification is where God bends our wills towards him. And the the metaphor that I think works really well is the, the those Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, even even though they were freed, they were they had political freedom. They, their identity had gone from slave to free. They didn't live like free people. You know, they still lived and thought like slaves. And that's what we see when they get to the promised land right away and they send in the 12 spies and the spies come back and they're like, no, we, we can't. And the Israelites all believe them. 
You know, they believe the 10 guys that said we can't do it um, because they still thought like slaves, even though they weren't, even though they were free, even though their, their identity had been changed from slave to free, they still thought and lived like slaves. And it took them, it took a whole generation rising up, growing up in freedom, like a new, you know, a new people, if you will, to be able to come back. And when they got back 40 years later, they lived, they were like, you know, uh, like, you know, I think we said it a couple weeks ago, like Joshua was like practically holding them back, you know, and they're like, they can't wait to get in there and conquer because they know that God, they know who God is and they know that God's going to be faithful and they've grown up as free people. And so the same, again, because we're in between, I think the same thing happens with us. We have been given new identities, new freedom, new everything, and yet we're, we still live so often as though we're not. And, and, and so we, it's, it's this process of learning what it means that we're free from these things. It's, it's learning what it means that these, these uh, enticing, broken things that promises all this good aren't actually good. You know, that actually the, the promises of God are what, make, are what make for the best life. So, yeah, very much everything, all that to say that I affirm what you say. That, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process of unbending. And for some people, it clearly happens, like, pretty quickly. For other people, it doesn't. And uh, I'm perfectly content to say that God works in all of us in different ways. And that's, we're going to talk more about the church next, next time we meet. But that's, that's part of the beauty of doing this together with people who have all of these different experiences. Well, it seems like it's changed in the church. Because I know when I was growing up, you know, the preacher was preaching, come get saved and then come get sanctified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Come to the altar and get sanctified. Yeah. And I don't really hear that anymore. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's interesting. So I grew up, I grew up Baptist, and we didn't have an idea of sanctification. We just had you got saved, and then you could rededicate your life. That was what we taught. That was what we called it. And so when I came into the Nazarene Church and I began hearing about this, you know, you have these, you know, you have your salvation experience, your sanctification experience, all this. Like I could actually point to a, a moment in my life that fit the language of a sanctification experience. Now, of course, when I was a Baptist kid, I didn't call it that because I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, But coming into the Nazarene church and getting the Nazarene theological language, I could say, oh, well, so if someone asks me, well, what's your sanctification experience? I can say, well, here's what mine was. Now, I don't think that everyone has a particular sanctification experience. I think that it can be either one of those things. Uh, and, And again, a great example of this is the way we treat salvation. You know, a lot of particularly even... So the, the, the two terms that you hear for this are crisis and process. Okay, a crisis is a thing that happens in a moment. It's like a point, you know, and, and it, it, we call it that because usually it's a like a bad... Like, you're oh, something bad happens and you come to God. And then process is the opposite, right? It's just like a linear thing and it's harder. It's harder to determine exactly when, you know, exactly when it happened. It was, all, it was like a thing that was happening all the time. And certainly, like, decisions were made along the way, but it's hard to pinpoint, like, which one exactly... So, so again, when it comes to salvation, I think a great comparison and contrast are, are the Apostle Paul and, like, the 12 disciples, okay? There's a clear, we even call salvation experiences Damascus Road experiences because of Paul's experience on the road to Damascus when God opens up the heavens and flips him on the head and blinds him and is like, knock it off. And Paul's like, oh, God's real and I was wrong and, like, whoa, like, right, and Many Christians have that kind of an experience, right? And those are the people we usually put up on a stage and give them a microphone and they tell these dramatic things and all the rest of us feel inferior because we don't have something like that, right? And we're like, maybe I should start selling drugs or something so that I can like, have a, a dramatic, you know, I mean, that's, 
Um, but I think if you look at, so Paul, Paul, one dude that had this kind of dramatic experience, right? The other guys, like, you, you, you can ask the question, it's like kind of a fun thought experiment, like, you know, when did Peter become a Christian? You know? Because when Jesus said, hey, follow me, like, he just thought he was some teacher. And then you can actually watch through the Gospels as the wheels start turning and pieces start clicking. And it's just kind of like all of these little experiences that they keep having. And they kind of build to this moment where he's like, wait a second, you're the Messiah. Right? But then even then you say, well, is that it? Because then Jesus right, turns around and he's like, yeah, you're talking like Satan. You're like, well, okay, wait, so he's got some of it, but he doesn't have all of it. So then, you know, then is it, is it when he abandons him at the crucifixion? Is it at Pentecost when they're having him, he's preaching and all these people are getting sick? Like, you're like, what? And it, it's hard to pin down an exact moment for Peter. It seems much more like it was a process that happened over years. And there are a lot of Christians that have that kind of experience. If you're like, so when did you first start following Jesus? You're like, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you the first time I came to church, but I wouldn't say that was the first time I was really following Jesus. I can tell you about this really incredible experience that happened at this one point, but you know, by that point, I had seen God working in my life, and I, you know, and it's just, it's hard. It's hard to pin down exactly when it happened. And it's, it's clear, it's clear now, you know, that, that you're in life and not in death, but it's just not, I mean, you didn't have a Damascus Road experience. And I think sanctification works the same way. For some people, there's this clear, this clear moment where you just sort of like surrender everything. Like you were saved. You knew you were saved. You were in Christ, right? You were having these experiences. But then there was like this, this another thing where it just felt like everything got taken to a whole new level. And it was real. And you, you can pinpoint it and all of that. And then there's other people that it's just, it's not like that for them. It's a lot more, it's a lot vaguer. It's a lot more of a process. And they can say like, I mean, I don't know. Like I can tell you that my walk with Christ today is a, like a whole different world than it was when I first got saved. But I, I don't know if I can tell you exactly when that happened and, to me, when we, start, when we start trying to pin things down and force people into a particular narrative, we miss how big God is and how God, even in the scriptures, draws people to him in all of these different crazy ways. You know, and there's, God basically, it seems like, does whatever he wants and doesn't consult us to make sure it fits our maps. Uh, so, yeah, Chris. Uh, in, early in the New Testament, I, if I'm not mistaken, the 12 are referred to as... Uh, followers. Hey, disciples, yes. Disciples. Here. Yeah. And then later they're referred to as apostles. Uh-huh. So that's that's kind of that yeah. Along. Yeah, you see, I mean it's it it's it's right. just really hard to pin down when all the And again, I I guess I just don't feel the need to pin it down. You know, to me I'm like, well, I don't right. totally care how it happens. Like what matters more is that you're growing in Christ. And we're getting here in a minute, but it's also dangerous too because if a person doesn't get it the way you get it, then you think, or they can think, you know. Yes. I had that happen to me. I, I remember I was 12 years old when I gave my heart to God mm-hmm. at summer camp. And the very next Sunday, I was in my grandparents' church, and a man came up to me and he says, I feel the need to pray for you. And I'm going, didn't I get it? <laughs> you know? What yeah. does he know that I yeah. don't know? Yeah. So it's very dangerous. Yeah. yeah, I think there needs to be a good amount of humility that goes into to all of this. And to me, what's less important than um, everyone's story looking the exact same is that we are all in Christ and pursuing growth in Christ. And, and we were experiencing all we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. But yes, yes. All I have to say, I agree with you. Okay, we got to move on. Uh, okay, the third, the third thing about salvation, we're going to talk more about this next week. The third stage, sort of, is glorification. 
And this is the end. This is when everything comes together and all the pieces fall into place. And it's the end of the new creation week, new Sabbath. We get resurrection bodies, all that stuff. We're going we're gonna to get there. We're not there. So, but it's coming. And I kept telling you it was coming. So, yes, I'm aware that it's there. It's coming. Okay. So I want to go to the Pentecost story real quick uh, because we can't talk about the Holy Spirit without talking about when the Holy Spirit really began to, we began to experience the Holy Spirit in the particular way that the church does. So... Uh, I didn't get time to finish this drawing, but imagine that there's a beautiful earth scene down here where it says earth. Um, Now, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he spends 40 days on earth hanging out with his disciples and appearing to people and proving that he's raised from the dead. And then there's this really interesting scene in the Gospel of Luke where he ascends into heaven. Okay, Now, forever, when I was a kid, I always thought that ascending into heaven meant that Heaven was, like, up somewhere. I didn't know where exactly, but up somewhere. And so Jesus, like, whoop, like flew, up, flew up into the sky. And that's sort of what happens in Luke. Like, he comes up into the clouds, and then it says he vanishes from their sight. Okay? But I think probably I'm not breaking any new astronomical ground here when I, when I tell you that heaven is not, like, behind the moon or something like it's not it's not a physical place inside of our universe right like despite the fact that weekly world news says that the hubble found it like we all are pretty clear that like that's not really true right that 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 when we when we try to think of heaven specifically in terms of it being located somewhere in our physical universe that's a little bit silly right but it does beg the question well what is it where is it and where did jesus go uh and for lack of better metaphors the ones that the scriptures give us are pretty good. Uh, in the book of Revelation, you get this vision of heaven as this place that's, I mean, it's up, it's above, right? But not in a physical way. But it's uh, the best metaphor that I've ever heard to describing what heaven, how it functions in, in the biblical framework is that it's like the control room for earth. Okay? So, so the way, and the way Revelation, now, of course, and they didn't have control rooms because they weren't industrialized, right? But they pictured it as, as a throne room. And again, remember that that house model was the same thing that their nation model was built on. So you could sort of think of this like the throne room, right, as where the king sat to run the kingdom, slash, like, I guess, like dad's lazy boy or whatever in the living room where dad sits and every, you know, commands that things be done and whatever. But, I mean, the metaphor works that heaven is, heaven is, is, interacting with our universe okay but it's the throne room of creation it's where the it's where the world is run from and so the ascension language that we find in the new testament is not that jesus ascended meaning like he ascended a flight of stairs like he went up it's that he ascended a throne is that after his resurrection he ascended to the throne of the universe he took his rightful place as the ruler of all creation okay that that's what that's the best way to understand the ascension language Okay, so it begs the question then, well, if if the father and the son are up in heaven ruling the universe, then who is here on the earth with us? And the answer to that question, of course, is God, the Holy Spirit. So um, what's really interesting is that, again, if you remember the creation language, right, that this is a new creation, that God is doing a new creation week, then the spirit, if you go back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. Right? So in the very beginning of the creation, you have God the Spirit hovering over the chaos of uncreation, 
beginning the process of putting the world into order. And so here now, too, at the beginning of the new creation week, we have the Spirit of God active in the world, bringing the world into the good order of creation. And so we, we keep hearing echoes of this, of this Genesis creation language all through the New Testament. So there's a couple things I want to note about Pentecost, and we need to read it because you can't talk about the Holy Spirit without talking about Pentecost. Um, so Acts 2 says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound uh, from heaven like the, war- the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them the- this ability. Now, a couple of cool things to note. First of all is that Pentecost was the festival where they celebrated Moses receiving the Torah. Okay? So it's not a coincidence that it's on this festival, which is, is celebrating Moses receiving the Torah, that the, the, those who are following Jesus, the believers, receive God the Holy Spirit indwelling them in some particular way. Um, this is, a, this is a prophecy that was fulfilled that was seen in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. A new covenant, just like the ones with Abraham and David and Moses, right? This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant, right? They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. Uh, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying that you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. So God is saying there's going to be coming a day when they're not going to have a look at these tablets to know my way, but I'm actually going to write my way on their hearts. One of the other prophets, Ezekiel, says I'm going to take out their stony hearts and give them a heart of flesh. Right? So there's this, there's, this, there's this idea that it's superseding Moses' covenant. It's a greater thing. And so here, on the day of the festival, when they're celebrating Moses receiving the covenant, they're getting that new covenant that God promised them that's happening through the person of Jesus. Now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, God the Holy Spirit is actually coming in and indwelling them and making it possible for them to follow the way of God, the way that leads to life, the way of Jesus. This is a new thing that God has never done before, right? That the Spirit has been living within them. Uh, It's also really fascinating, very provocative, that they all start speaking to all of the other people around them in the same languages, right? They are speaking, and everyone who's listening can hear them in whatever language they speak. So, you know, if I'm... If I'm Peter and I'm preaching, right, and some of you are Chinese and some of you are German and some of you are Brazilian and whatever, whatever, like you all hear me in your native language. Because this is specifically reversing one of the last major curses in Genesis on humanity, which was the division of languages at Babel. And this was, again, after the flood, when God said, I know that the, every inclination of the human heart is evil. And they said, we're going to build a tower, we're going to climb up to heaven, and we're going to be like God, which is just what they said in the Garden of Eden, right? <coughs> God divided their languages. And it was, a way of, it was a way of dividing and separating and spreading people out. And so here, God is reversing the flow of history. God is bringing everything back together. Because now languages are even becoming one again. Right? And all of the things that were dividing us are now starting to bring us back together. And this is all being done through the Spirit. 
So everything we're seeing here is all, yeah. So you don't think that this means when they're talking about speaking in tongues? Uh, so if you're thinking about the particular Pentecostal gift of tongues, that is a very different phenomenon. There, and, and it's confusing because the same words used for both. But no, this is, this is explicitly in Acts. You're speaking whatever language you speak. And when I speak my native language, you hear me in your native language. Um, it's not the secret divine language that... Yeah, two totally different, two totally different gifts. Um, both both of them attested to in the New Testament, but different, very different. They're both called tongues because the same Greek word is used, but they're not the same thing. So was he was he, was he afraid that they were going to build a tower and hurt themselves and fall off? No, afraid is not the right word. Okay. <laughs> um, no, again, w- what was at stake at Babel was that it was the same thing. God had given them a command: be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And instead of instead of instead of spreading out and uh, exercising dominion over the whole world, they were deciding that they were going to do their own thing. They were going to build a tower, and they wanted to. They wanted to become gods. They wanted to build a tower and, you know, climb Mount Olympus, whatever, right? So, didn't the Nazarenes, when they first start, didn't they believe in speaking in tongues? No, and actually, uh, the Nazarenes never practiced the gift of tongues as a denomination. We were called the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene because of our emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and obviously Pentecost is where we've got the Holy Spirit. But then when the Pentecostal denominations began, like the Assemblies of God, and started, started practicing regular speaking in tongues in their worship gatherings, we actually dropped Pentecostal from the name of our church to differentiate ourselves. So, um, One last kind of cool thing about the Spirit um, and is, is John, John in his gospel has a little bit of a different uh, take on the Pentecost story. So uh, it's the Sunday evening that he's raised from the dead. And uh, the disciples are meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And it says, suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now again, the word spirit in Greek and in Hebrew is the same as the word for breath or the word for wind. So it's, it's he breathed on them the holy breath or the, he spirited on them the holy, I mean, it's all, it's all the same idea there. But that is an echo back to Genesis 2 when God breathed the spirit or the breath of life into the nostrils of humanity. So again, we get that same recreation language, right? That this, the spirit is actually the one who regenerates us. When we receive the Holy Spirit, that's what makes us a new creation, is we receive the spirit or the breath of God within us. Again, just a cool little note. In case you were worried that this whole recreation thing is like a little sidebar in the scriptures, like, no, it keeps hitting you over the head again and again and again. It's like a major point. Okay, very briefly, I want to go through what the Holy Spirit does in the life of believers. And... um, yeah, we're just going to do this. Uh, we'll be all right. Okay. So again, I, want, I really want you guys, we're going to have to go through these scriptures very quickly for the sake of time. Please spend some time over the next couple of weeks reading them, spending some good time in them. They're so rich. Uh, they're so good. I'm, there are very few things that get me as excited about what it means to be in Christ as reading through Romans 8, reading through the book of Hebrews, stuff like that. So, so spend, some, spend some time in there. It, it'll, it'll do you good. So Paul says in Romans 8, you received God's spirit when he called you his, as his own children. Again, we're in God's house now, right? We've been brought out of death, out of the house of death into the house of life. Now we call him Abba Father. 
For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. So the first thing that the spirit does for us is it confirms our adoption as God's children. It confirms our salvation. Uh, there are times when I'm, and, when I'm, and I, I'm uh, pretty open about the mystical elements of my faith, the things that you can't put down on paper and that don't make sense, right? So I'll, I'll be in conversations with some atheist friends of mine. And they'll be like, but how do you know? Like, how, what's the evidence? And I'll say, like, well, look, like the spirit confirms in, in my own self that, that God is true and, and that, that, I'm, I, that this whole process, this, all this stuff that I've experienced, that it's, that it's legitimate. And they're like, well, that doesn't help me out. And I'm like, I know. Like, I know. Like, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I don't know. I can't put it into words. I can't explain it to you. I can't put it on a spreadsheet. I wish I could, you know. But, like, they're like, well, you can't confirm your own experience. Like, you can't. It's not proof. And I'm like, oh, I, I know. Like, I know it's not. Um, but, like, that's, that's what it is. Like, you ask me why I don't doubt, why I don't have any question about it, and this, like, this is what it is, that, that in, a, in a very ineffable way, you know, and, and explicitly in a way that I cannot put into words. You know, the Spirit confirms with my spirit that I'm a child of God, that this adoption stuff, that it's, that it's real. Um, I can't explain it. So, sorry. Uh, I, and I mean that I'm not being, you know, a smart outlook about it. Like, I, I wish I wish I could, uh, I don't know, pull out, like, a membership of heaven card that I got in the mail when I accepted Christ and show you proof, but that's not how it works. Like, and yeah. Um, the other thing that's really, really cool is what Paul says uh, next in Romans 8, 18 through 24. He says, uh, he says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. And again, hear that. We are not the only things that bear the weight of the curse of sin. All creation is groaning under the weight of our sin. And all creation is waiting for that final day when redemption is finished and when, when everything is freed from the curse of sin. Right? Uh, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though, and this is the cool part, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. So we, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope and we were saved. Now, we've been talking about what it means to live in between, right? This idea that we're a part of this new thing, but it's not all here yet. Right? And we're still against, you know, against our will, participating in this old broken thing that's passing away. Right? We're caught between. And, and we're participating in both of these realities at the same time. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is, uh, it's, it's like a sneak peek. It's like when you go to the movies and you get there in time to see the previews, because those are the best part, right? And the Holy Spirit is like a preview of the coming glory. All of these moments that we get in our lives when we're, when we're utilizing spiritual gifts, when we're having these, these profound experiences of God, and they're just, they're so brief, and they're, but they're so beautiful, and you just kind of hold on to them, and you wish, you wish that you could just live in that all the time, 
Well, it's like a sneak preek or a sneak preview. It's like a it's like a coming attraction. Yeah, sneak peek. And, and and Paul says like so so we're groaning, we're you know under the anguish of sin, living in this broken creation, but we get these glimpses. We get these moments in our lives where we experience the power of the Spirit, and we can almost we can almost see what it's going to look like to live in that resurrected, restored reality. Almost, right? Like it's almost there, and it's so powerful and it's so compelling that it helps us to continue going on. And that's what the Spirit does for us. Uh, other places prefer the Spirit as almost like a down payment, right? It's like an assurance. It's like a proof that God has said, like, don't worry, I'm coming back. I'm coming for you. You have this, you have this as proof that I haven't abandoned you. And that's who the Spirit is in our life. It's God active in our lives in this in-between space, working in us to redeem us, to restore us, to sanctify us. So that when we experience the Holy Spirit, it's, it's evidence that God has not abandoned or forgotten us. It's evidence that the that all things are becoming new. Whew. Okay. So, oh, we still got five minutes. All right. Um. Okay. So, there's things that we're saved from, and there's things that we're saved for. When I was growing up, I was not in a denomination that talked about what we're saved for. I t- we talked a lot about what we're saved from. We're saved from sin and death, right? You ask Jesus in your heart, in your heart so you don't go to hell. And that's true, right? It's unquestionably true. But that's not all there is. We are saved from sin. We are saved from death. We are saved from the ultimate consequences of these things. Though, as we see from Israel's own story, right, not always the immediate consequences of our decisions. You can't do whatever you want and then... Pray to Jesus for forgiveness, and Jesus is like, well, we'll just take care of all those consequences too. Right? I mean, that's just that's not how the world works. We are we live in a world uh, characterized by free will, but we are saved um, from from at least ultimately sin and death. Okay, but we are also saved for. In other words, right? We're saved. We're saved from this, but we're also saved for life. We're also saved for Christ. We're also saved for being image bearers. And so the Spirit, when we talk about the Spirit sanctifying us, what we mean is that the Spirit is one who enables us to live as faithful images of God in God's world on God's terms. Right? The Spirit is the one who does this. The Spirit is the one who creates us anew, and the Spirit is the one who enables us to live, uh, not, you know, not just not here, but enables us to live here. Enables us not just to not be bad, but enables us to be good. And so I wanted to close with... Right, absolutely, yep. Yeah, and again, that's what we're seeing. The Spirit has taken us back to what God created us for. So here's what Paul says in Galatians. He says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now the sinful nature, right, the, the fallen, the broken nature of Adam, that wants us... To do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposites of what the sinful nature desires. Right? We're caught in between. We have both of these things in us. We experience both of them. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I've told you before, no one living that sort of life will inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these sort of things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Right? We've died to the way of death. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Uh, if you've been around this church for very long at all, you know that we talk about uh, a process called spiritual formation. And, and the way to think about spirit, and what, it, what that means, right, is allowing God to form us, or if you want to stick to the language we've been using here, bend us, right, back into the way of Christ. That we are formed in a particular way, and spiritual formation is saying yes and allowing the Spirit to form us in the way of Christ. Now, Christians have been figuring this out for 2,000 years, and so we have tons and tons and tons of different practices that we use to help us form. Things that, things that people have said, you know what, when we do these activities, they help us say yes to the Spirit. They help us be formed into the image of Christ. Um, and so you know, here at BCN, we, there are five that we've kind of picked out that, that we say, you know, we kind of just, for the sake of simplicity, focus on these five and You've heard us talk about them if you've been a part of the Sunday morning stuff, right? Reading the scriptures, it's kind of probably a no-brainer. That doesn't surprise anyone, right? Prayer, fasting. Fasting is a great one that helps us say no in a culture that always wants us to say yes, right? Um, keeping the Sabbath, again, another one that helps us to say no. It's basically fasting with your time, right? A one that, that reminds us that we're not how much we produce, right? That our identity isn't tied to uh, how many zeros are in our paycheck or, or whatever. And then generosity, which again, in a, in a culture that's plagued by selfishness, is, is another uh, fascinating practice that helps form us uh, not in the ways of death, but in the ways of life. So um, this, is how, this is how we follow the way of Christ. This is how we open ourselves up to the Spirit. We, we create space in our lives for the Spirit to move. We create space in our lives for the Spirit to speak to us. Uh, again, if you want to dive back into the relationship metaphor, it's spending time with a person that you're in a relationship with. It's you're, You don't really have a relationship with someone if you never see them, if you never interact with them, right? <coughs> so, okay. We are out of time. I want to close us in prayer, and then uh, we can, uh, if you want to stick around and chat, you know, we can do that. Um, but I do want to get you out of here, at least in a reasonable facsimile of on time. Next week is the Halifunaweenie event here, trunk retreat, all of that. So I'll be here, but I'll be in a costume, and we won't be having class. So I'd still, if you, I'd still encourage you to come and hang out. It's going to be a great time, uh, great time to serve our community and all of that. Um, but uh, then we'll meet again the week after that, and we'll get to all those burning questions that you still have left. So uh, let's pray together. God, as always, we are so grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather and to consider what it means to follow you and how we can become a people who are more faithful images of you. Uh, we want to live in your world on your terms because we believe you when you tell us that that is the way to life. Uh, we thank you that this is not something that you've abandoned us to and just said, you know, good luck, hope you can make it. But you've actually come into our lives and, and uh, made it possible for us to say no to the things that bring us death and say yes to your spirit so that we might know life. 
So this week I would ask that you would make us all mindful of the ways that you are calling us to say yes, the ways that you are calling us to do that next right thing in our lives because we believe that taking the next right step in your path is what leads to life and what leads to flourishing. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit as a down payment on your future redemption and as a promise and as a preview of what you're going to do when you finally redeem the world. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. All right, thanks, everyone. I will see you. I'll see you before two weeks from now, but definitely two weeks from now. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday.